0: you please come back, we're looking for you high and low, cause leaving an ain't polite in the middle of the night, be Cooper works
1: song didn't get nearly enough play when it first came out. It's <laughs> so good So good to, one. So oh, good to hear it again. <laughs> Tomorrow is the 51st anniversary of the most notorious skyjacking in American history when a man known only as D.B. Cooper got away with $200,000 back when it was worth $200,000. <laughs> That's and a lot of money today, too. 1, <laughs> 1. $1.5 million by my estimation. Oh. Yep. Parachuted from a Boeing 727 somewhere south of Seattle, and our resident historian and In-house D.B. Cooper obsessive Felix Bunnell has uh, just made a fresh discovery to be added to the FBI case file. Brought to us by Lake Washington Windows and Doors.
2: Felix. Yeah, and that D.B. Cooper song was by Tom Bresch. He passed away earlier this year. He was a nice guy. We talked to him a couple years ago, and he sang a little verse of the song anyway. uh, Rest in peace, Tom Bresch. R.I.P. So uh, here it is, another anniversary of the hijacking of Northwest Airlines flight. Flight 305, a Boeing 727 flying from Portland to Seattle on November 24, 1971, Thanksgiving Eve, for those who are paying attention. Basic facts are, passenger in a business suit said he had a bomb and he wanted $200,000, the plane circled Seattle for a while, then landed at SeaTac. They gave Cooper the money and four parachutes. Three or five other passengers got off the plane, and the flight crew and one stewardess remained, and they were called stewardesses in those days. Uh, they took off for Reno, but somewhere over southwest Washington, the rear door of the jet, which has a set of stairs on the 727, was opened by Cooper, and he jumped out into history, as they say. And law enforcement launched the search, but came up empty again and again and again. Some of the money was found along the Columbia River in 1980, but the suspect has never been identified and never found. Just about every year around this time, someone comes forward claiming to know who Cooper was or even to be D.B. Cooper, but uh, none of those have ever really panned out. FBI closed the case in 2016. So fast forward to last month. I was a guinea pig for the Minnesota Historical Society in St. Paul for a new service where someone like me sits at my computer using meeting software and an archivist 2,000 miles away combs through folders of documents and photos. He's got a video camera pointed down at a desktop, you know, a real desktop, not a computer, so I can see the documents well enough to read them or see the details in photos. I was doing some research about an unrelated Northwest Airlines incident, and the archivist, a really nice guy named Colin Dunn, was going through a folder of miscellaneous images of Northwest Airlines aircraft. That's when something I saw, the number on the tail of a Northwest Airlines Boeing 727, looked familiar and made me pause. What's the number on that one? 467? 467-US. Hang on one second. I want to look at the D.B. Cooper tail number. Let me just just do a quick little search here. D.B. Cooper 727 So as I quickly searched online, I asked Colin to confirm the tail number for me one more time. It is N four six seven US. That's the DB Cooper plane. Oh my God! Really? That might be a previously (laughs) unpublished shot. I want that. I want that one. I want that next one. Excuse my language, but that's so cool. (laughs) (laughs) That is that's that's mind. There's no notes on the back, is there?
3: No, nothing on the back.
2: There it is again. now, I don't normally just tape when I'm talking to people no. like that, but this session was being recorded because of this meeting software. That's why we had that wonderful, we didn't recreate that, that's real. Not, wow. No, I, I believe it. I now just we had, know. Just no, indeed you have the mouth of a sailor. Go ahead. Yeah.
4: <laughs> <laughs> I know. You're always so cool, calm,
2: collected. Wow. Usually, I talk to you guys on on, on I the love air. That. Like, I mean, let's get turn the microphones off and we go. No, so it's pretty exciting. To be clear, the photos and there's four of them, which we now have at my Northwest. They're not taken during the DB Cooper hijacking, but they are of the specific Boeing 727 that was the scene of the crime. They aren't marked in any way, and so the Minnesota Historical Society didn't know they had them until Colin and I randomly stumbled across them. As far as we know, they've never been published and never even identified as being that particular 727. Now, it's exciting because there aren't many images of the plane, and it was, of course, unceremoniously scrapped in 1985. The 727 was built in Renton, delivered to Northwest Airlines in 1965, and they sold it to Piedmont in 1978. And that Northwest Airlines brand, of course, went away uh, after the Delta merger in 2010. Now, the four images all appear to be from the same date, and that date is unknown. Could have been before the hijacking, could have been after. They're taken at the airport in Bismarck, North Dakota, um, which is not a very big airport. And they show the 727 on the tarmac and in the air. Two, Im- two images give a really nice view of that back staircase deployed, and that's an added bonus because of how it was used by D.B. Cooper when he jumped out of the plane. Now, for a reality check, I reached out to Bruce Kitt. He's a former Northwest Airlines mechanic who nowadays runs the Northwest Airlines History Center in Minneapolis. He knows his D.B. Cooper history, and he knows the Minnesota Historical Society, but he'd never seen these images before. But still, he threw a little cold water on the discovery.
3: There is only, I think, one photo of 467 that's Famous. And that's the nighttime shot taken at SeaTac when, you know, during the course of negotiations and the money delivery. Any other photo you see of 467?
2: Hum. Yeah, now Bruce Mc- <laughs> Bruce McKim yeah. took that shot. He's, I talked to him last year. We had him on the air last year. He's a Seattle Times photographer who took that very famous image. Now, but these these Bismarck photos aren't just some grainy snapshots. They're high-res, nicely composed professional images. Take a look at my Northwest. I've reached out to the Bismarck Historical Society, try to get some help to date when the photo was taken um, because of how the airport looks, and maybe identify the photographer even. Uh-huh. Now, one last thing. The photos are a reminder of what a shame it is that as late as 1985, there wasn't an effort to preserve the jet. I mean, it would have made an incredible artifact and a real tourist destination. Um, but Bruce Kitt, though, says it's unlikely Northwest Airlines ever saw it that way. It wasn't marked
3: afterwards, hey, you're flying on the plane that was hijacked.
2: Uh, that's not really, you know, I'm, I'm sure they may have thought of that, but I'm sure somebody in PR and legal may have thought, you know, that's, uh, let's think, uh, let's let's revisit
3: that and talk about that a little more. Yeah. You know.
2: <laughs> Yeah. I, I, it is a
1: crime. I'm not course, at all yeah. surprised that they wanted to be rid of that plane. So now that you have the photo, is, is it your idea that you can zoom in on these high-res photographs and, and see a fingerprint that they missed
2: or what? I think it's just it's, – this is the scene of the crime. This is like a famous location, right? Oftentimes locations are set You know, they're, – they're, they're not mobile like this. This thing was mobile, and, of course, it was ultimately destroyed, and we don't know that much about it. There's not very many good images of it. This There's this, these pictures of it in flight, pictures of it up close – couple of them are like, they're taken through the window of the cafeteria at the airport and they're really nicely closed. They're gorgeous. They're like glamour shots of a, oh, of a crime scene. I guess they're really ghoulish, Dave, guess what I'm trying to say. But it's, <laughs> it's, it's just neat when something comes up that's actually factual. It's not someone pretending to be D.B. Cooper or saying they're D.B. Cooper. It's some more actual factual evidence of what happened. 51 years ago tomorrow
4: so what do you think about you know we've talked a little bit about a friend of mine who's involved in the making of the movie i am db cooper which is a documentary style movie that there's dramatization and then there's this guy who is local and claims to be db cooper and that this was all over sort of a mental break over his love life and he was trying to do something grand and win her back i mean are you tired of hearing those stories of people
2: claiming to be him i'm skeptical yeah Mm -hmm. i i hopefully it'll never be solved it's like that's you why don't it's exciting it to be it, solved. No, if they solve it, it'd be well, kind of why boring. We're we, we, looking for evidence. Then. Well, <laughs> I look go Felix? I look for evidence, not crackpot theories like Colleen is pushing <laughs> over here. You know, this is this <laughs> I'm is this is anything. the real facts, the history. This is a, these are artifacts. These are evidence.
4: I'm proud of my friend who is starring in a movie.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: I'm DB Cooper, and I think it's I think to me, what keeps this story going too are all the different theories. Whether they're you know you are skeptical of them, or whether it might lead you down a road to find DB Cooper. I kind of want it solved,
2: Felix. See, I hope not because I, I want it to be mythology. And to like to uh, 100 years from now, people still wonder what's going on. But only one person knows, and maybe he's listening right now. If DB Cooper's listening to Seattle's morning news, hit us up on the text line. You know, we'll, we'll have it, you on the show. Just this, tell us. This is the time to step forward. It really
1: is, yeah. Yeah. Even even if you destroy Felix's
4: <laughs> I know. You've been so resistant in any theories. Yeah.
1: All of Felix's features are at mynorthwest.com. Thanks, Felix. Thanks Let's talk traffic jams. Could artificial intelligence reduce the number of traffic jams? Researchers are now taking aim at a specific type of delay called the phantom traffic jam, where traffic slows down not because of an accident, but because of volume. Researchers in Nashville say the problem is impatience. Drivers who attempt to speed up, even though there's no place to go, then tap the brakes. One person taps the brakes. The person behind them takes a second to respond, has to brake even harder. The next person has to brake even harder. And the wave of braking continues until many cars are at a standstill. And then, as traffic clears, the drivers are impatient. They accelerate too quickly. It causes more braking and another traffic jam. So, in an experiment conducted by Vanderbilt University, AI-equipped cars were programmed to drive at just the right speed so that no brake tapping was necessary. I've done this. Yes. The experiment involved 100 cars that traveled in loops on a 15-mile section of I-24 from about 6 in the morning till 9.45 in the morning during morning rush hour, working on the premise that if 5% of the cars on the road were acting together, they could lessen the prevalence of phantom traffic jams. So the researchers equipped those 100 cars to communicate wirelessly, sending traffic information back and forth. Whoa. They also used the adaptive cruise controls that many cars have already, so you can just follow the car in front of you. You don't have to adjust your speed all the time. So in the experiment, the adaptive cruise control was modified to react to the overall traffic flow, not just the car in front of you, but cars far ahead, so the car itself could set the ideal speed. And the four-mile stretch of I-24 was outfitted with 300 pole-mounted <laughs> sensors to make all this work. They went all out. So this is this is not the car doesn't steer itself, it's not autonomous driving, but it sets the right speed to prevent a stop and go situation. And the result was ninety eight percent less braking, a forty percent increase in fuel efficiency, and a fourteen percent increase in distance driven in a given time. And I Chris, you correct me if I'm wrong, but that's what those variable speed signs on I five and I ninety are intended to do, right?
5: Well, it's supposed to tell you what the speed is coming up so you can adjust ahead of time so you don't have to brake late. I've got one question for you. This You said this was done on a loop. Was there any traffic coming on or going off that loop?
1: That I don't know, but this is a public highway, so this is not a closed course.
5: Okay, because with the, you know, one of the big things that uh, goes along with this is the general lack of merging knowledge and mm-hmm. etiquette that also c- can be created. I'd be interested to see if they factored that in, because when you have p- the, the fools that we see out here that <laughs> instinctively cross three lanes of traffic immediately, <laughs> that, that automatically causes those phantom backups as well. Yeah. But uh, I'd be interested to see if that was factored in, because that, that's a big component of what we see here is the lack of merging and people creating backups that shouldn't be
4: there the competition to speed up and not let somebody in one of the, yeah, the biggest spots I see it every morning on the way home is right through Northgate as you're approaching Northgate on northbound i-5 there's a lot of merging happening oh, the there express lanes merging. Uh, well no not the express lanes the the regular lanes of the freeway the the general purpose lanes and right before you get to the Northgate Mall it always slows down there there's a lot of of you know merging and people getting off the freeway but there's never an accident, but people slam on their brakes immediately right there.
5: Well, what happens is, Dave, but to Dave's point, it is the that's the impact of the express lanes joining right there, because no, what you have is people even, in the express lanes have to, or to go and they try to exit at the next exit, which is one thirtieth, and there's not enough room to go over this, five lanes. But I will they do say, it anyway.
4: the time that I'm, is usually when they're closing the express, so there's no cars entering from, this has nothing to do with the express lanes, I will say okay, that. Okay, then I'll, that's blame a phantom spot. <laughs> yeah. I'll blame 85th. Yeah, that's what I'm All saying, the there's a lot on of, 85th. yeah,
1: but the encouraging thing in this experiment is that they found out that not everybody has to do this. If just 5% of drivers were anticipating the slowdown and slow down ahead of time, that actually has its its Contagious goodness. You I've see. done
4: it before, where you just kind of drift yeah, at exactly. like five miles per hour. You never have. You have to keep a good space between right. you and the car in front of you. Of course, then people take advantage of that and get in. And get in. That's but the problem. It's contagious because I've noticed more than once the person behind me will start doing it mm-hmm. because they see I'm not tapping see? my brakes. Yeah. So
1: just appoint yourselves. Five percent of you just agree to do this. Yeah. And the phantom traffic jams disappear. 6.48 Seattle's Morning News. The Supreme Court of the United States is going to help Donald Trump keep his 2016 campaign promise to release his tax returns. Let's go to CBS News correspondent Scott McFarlane, who joins us live now. So what did the court say, Scott?
3: court didn't actually say anything. It didn't explain its decision or include any dissents from any of the justices. It just opened the door, finally, after years of battle, for the Trump records, the tax records, to go to the House Committee on Ways and Means, the U.S. House's tax writing committee. This has been a years-long dispute that finally seems to have culminated. But the question is this morning, When does the committee get its hands on those records? Uh, We're told immediately, expediently, but we expect some confirmation from the committee once the papers are in their hands.
1: Of course, the fear is that once the Congress changes hands, the Republicans would somehow stop this. But, I mean, the Supreme Court, that's the end of the line. There's no more appeals after that. So it sounds to me like the returns have to at least go to the Ways and Means Committee. I guess the only question then is whether they're uh, disclosed to the public or not.
3: I, the Committee on Ways and Means had to make a legal argument to get these records. And the argument they made was they need them as part of their legislative function and investigatory function to do their jobs as legislators, that they need to potentially write new legislation to change how presidential tax records are handled by the Department of Treasury or perhaps legislate a requirement that presidential candidates release tax records publicly. So they have an investigation and a report to file Once they get the tax records, they're not going to upload them and put them on a website for America to go through, Uh, but they have a finite amount of time to do their investigation and their report because they lose this majority and control of the House committee in about six weeks. So timing's of the essence, and they only maintain complete autonomy of this committee until the end of the calendar year.
1: Now, is there what's the speculation on what's in them? I mean, we, we've pretty much been told that Donald Trump was taking deductions based on uh, real estate values uh, because he had suffered losses, apparently, which is legal, as I understand it, under the, under the law. So, is there still anybody suspecting that there's going to be a smoking gun in these returns?
3: Well, there's a strong suspicion there's something in the returns Donald Trump doesn't want people to see. I mean, as is evident by this unprecedented seven-year fight to keep them from being disclosed, even though it was customary for presidential candidates of the major parties to do so. I mean, this is a pretty notorious and deliberate attempt not to show something. So the question is, what's inside? Um, We know others have gotten their hands on these tax returns, like the prosecutors or investigators in the state of New York Mm -hmm. and the city of Manhattan, and they have undertaken investigations and filed legal challenges. We'll see where that goes. That may be a different uh, way to look at this item. But I don't expect the Committee on Ways and Means to put up on their website Donald Trump's tax returns. There's no anticipation that's going to happen. What they release will likely be synthesized into a more fulsome report about how presidential tax records should be handled in the future.
1: Okay, the other case, one of the other many cases he's facing, is the uh, Trump Organization case, which goes to trial in New York next year. And remind us what this one's about.
3: Yeah, so this is one of many different investigations. and At some point it becomes difficult, Dave, to keep track of all of them in new york there's an investigation about how the trump nonprofit handled its business and i mean its business its financials that's one investigation that's been underway for quite some time by the way and came to light shortly after donald trump became president Um, there's also the investigation in georgia where senator lindsey graham of south carolina testified before a grand jury yesterday in efforts to overturn the 2020 elections in georgia there's the investigations underway in Mar-a-Lago into the presidential record seized there, a hearing of which went to the appeals court earlier this week. And there's the big investigation into January 6th happening here in Washington. A grand jury has been seated. And now, of course, there's a special counsel appointed by the attorney general to right. oversee the Mar-a-Lago probe and the January 6th probe.
1: Now, are any go of on. those are any of those cases? Do any of those depend on who runs Congress? Those go on regardless, right?
3: Those go on depending on who runs the Department of Justice, and that is obviously the Biden administration's Merrick Garland until at least 2025. Um, That's a Department of Justice probe and one that really should be immune from politics. The Department of Justice has always prided itself on being immune from politics, so that there should be no political considerations as to whether charges are brought in these cases. CBS
1: News correspondent Scott McFarland. Scott, thank you.
3: Happy Thanksgiving, Dave.
1: To you, too
4: your daily dose brought to you by heritage homecraft the tradition continues seven years after a wrong number text wanda dench thought she was texting her grandson when uh, in wanted to invite him in 2016 to thanksgiving dinner but he changed his number and the text actually went to a jamal hinton the two had a good laugh about it exchanging selfies and then jamal asked if he could still come over and have a plate and wanda said Of course, because that's what grandmas do. They feed you. You remember this story? Is this ringing a bell? Now, each year, they update their followers. And CBS's Jamie Ucas came to dinner with them in 2020 when their unlikely friendship took a turn. Wanda's husband of four decades died after contracting COVID-19 in April of 2020, near the start of the pandemic.
2: I love just being here. I feel like we could uh, connect more and bond.
4: That first dinner led to a lasting friendship between Hinton, his girlfriend, Dench, and her husband of 43 years, Lonnie. Don't want to
6: start crying, but...
4: But this year, like so many families, there will be one person missing at their table. Lonnie passed away from COVID 19 in April. The group, along with Dench's real grandson, decided to keep their Thanksgiving tradition. Friday's dinner in Lonnie's honor. I miss him, but I know he's in a good place. So, to everybody here, I love you and have a wonderful Thanksgiving. So as I said, this will be year seven after that mistaken text message that these two one strangers will get together for Thanksgiving dinner. And an even bigger update, Netflix is going to tell their story now. Of course. Yes, we don't know the release date yet or when it happens, but on Jamal's uh, Twitter profile, he said big things are coming and he is giving hints of it. So good for them. 7.48
1: 7.48 Seattle's Morning News, and now from the G and Ursula Show, here he is, G. Scott, who is single-handedly keeping Twitter alive. What the, why, why do you get so exercised about Thanksgiving? <laughs> because it's,
7: number one, something that we can all relate to. Mm-hmm. Everything. I went on Twitter and Facebook and I went crazy with all the do's and don'ts to Thanksgiving.
4: I think you were right about all of them, too. <laughs> I read through all of them and I went, yeah, <laughs> yep,
7: absolutely. People kept asking me, did I get hacked? And I'm, no. Um, <laughs> There's so many things that happen at Thanksgiving. And the thing that is amazing about the day tomorrow is that, um, yes, while we might have all different types of foods, we all have some of the same issues and circumstances, right? Every family is different and we could all share some of those things. So there's gonna, there's somebody going to a dinner tomorrow with family and there's gonna be somebody there that you just don't like and you'd really wish that they weren't there. But it's the holidays. So what do you do in that situation? So usually, Dave and Colleen, you show up, and the worst thing to do is is to let it linger, kind of pretend like you don't see them, and try to ignore and avoid them. Nah, nah, nah. Because all you're doing is ruining your time. So what you do is you seek them out, and as soon as you see them, and you say, Hey, Dave, Happy Thanksgiving. Good to see you. Bam. Get it out the way. Mm-hmm. then you can enjoy the rest of your day. You have the upper hand. You, you take have, the higher road. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, you, you take turn the, the, the higher energy. road. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, just circumstances. What is your contribution
1: to Thanksgiving tomorrow, Dave? Um, I'll probably be the sous chef. When when uh, I took a uh, a knife skills class at a, uh, a cooking school once, and I've I've held that over everybody's head ever since. That you know, before you cut anything, let me do it for you because I don't want to see any injuries. Like when Colleen practically I know. cut off her finger because she didn't know how to my use off. a knife properly. So, <laughs> what, what, like for for example, my job yesterday was to um, uh, to uh, slice and dice the leeks before mm-hmm. they were sautéed, and yeah. I did a great job. Nobody was injured. Yeah, fam. Y- 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 y'all, wh- wh- where where the leaks going to? What are they going on? Well, they went into last night's uh, dinner. Some kind of recipe. I don't pretend to understand, but it tasted it tasted very good. Yeah. Now, when you like, when you do that, do you have music going in the background when you when you cut? Oh, no. the... I have snacks uh, standing by. Mm-hmm. I like to snack while I cook, so I always have a like a little jar of mixed nuts. Mm-hmm. So during lulls, when you're like waiting for something to saute or there's nothing to go on, you can snack on some nuts.
4: Yeah. Are you a cook? No. I don't think I've ever asked you that. Do you cook?
1: I I do I do. I used to I used to cook pies a lot when we had apple trees in the backyard and I had sort of this woven crust for the top of the pie. You know, you know what? Hold on. It's interesting. So Colleen and I, you know, this is our time to really
7: ask you questions. And and I noticed something. That that? every time we ask you something, you hit us with a little subtle flex. You know what I mean? Like I said, so Dave, what is your contribution to well, you guys know You
1: went to a night what did you call what kind of? Cool. It, it was. A, it was just a, a, on Vashon Vash Island. They had this little uh, cooking workshop. Nice skills. How not to bleed out while you're cooking is what. It is. I mean, just you just find out amazing stories about That's you. True. So your grandkids are gonna come.
7: You're gonna see your grandkids, right? Yeah. So what is some of the voices that they're gonna have you do? Because I know you getting character. Uh, oh, he did voices. three
4: voices for a promo yesterday in rapid succession. It was incredible.
1: I I am I don't do voices for them. I, when our our philosophy of raising kids was never to do was to just talk adult to them. No, but so, they're going to have you Being care, you're too young for that yet. You don't have different characters that you do around them. No, no, I I read them books. I'll read character voices when I'm reading them stories or something. That's legit. That's legit.
4: Now, one of your let's stop peppering Dave, he's starting to get uncomfortable. I can tell he's like, move on, move on. on. One of the pieces of etiquette that you put on your Twitter thread that I wholeheartedly agree with, not just for Thanksgiving, but year round, Mm -hmm. is don't bring your bare feet into my home.
7: No, because, what that? well, what, this is what happens. You're going to go to someone's house. Now, let's say you've been to Colleen's house and you know Colleen has a, you have to take your shoes off. So you already know, okay, to prepare. Mm-hmm. But if you don't know, if you're going to a new house for Thanksgiving and you just don't know, don't just assume. So don't wear those shoes with no socks, Dave. Right. Bring your fresh wears, socks with you. Who wears shoes with no socks? They, well,
4: sa- like, there's women have high heels. We oh, don't wear, sa- okay. you know, well, so you have to bring a change of socks. It's like when you I go see. bowling, you bring a fresh pair of socks. Yeah, you don't want to wear the socks that were in the bowling shoes. Gross. What,
1: I, what, I, what surprised me was that you were talking about how some people don't pick up on the cue when to leave when their guests oh, for dinner. Absolutely. So, <laughs> and I think you're pointing out when your hosts come down wearing their pajamas. <laughs> That's the time to leave. Well, that, that, and and if, if before the
7: pajamas comes in, and it's it's towards the end of the night, yeah. and the host says to you, so, Colleen, what's your plans for tomorrow? That's your cue. That's your cue. Get out. Get out! Get out or start cleaning the dishes.
4: That's right. If you're going to stick around till late in the evening, you better be helping clean up.
1: Well, look up up G. Scott's uh, Twitter thread while while Twitter is still there and it'll save you a lot of grief on Thanksgiving.
4: Have you decided on your protein for Thanksgiving outside of turkey? Beef brisket. Oh, that's right. You know, somebody yesterday on Twitter said ribs and I went, that's genius. Ribs for Thanksgiving?
7: No, oh, ribs would be great. Sorry. You know, what I mean, you know how many people we have mad at us about I'm our turkey stance. Well, I'll, I'll leave you guys with this: if turkey is so special, <laughs> if it's so special, <laughs> yeah. why can you find it for a dollar a pound?
4: Yeah, and only eat it once a year.
1: <laughs> yeah, there you go. G Scott at nine with Ursula on Cairo News Radio.
4: Checkmate. <laughs>
1: Morning News. This is Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien. And it's time to get a virus update with Dr. Keith Jerome, director of the UW Virology Lab. And I see that the CDC is warning us about a new milder, but apparently vastly more infectious strain of COVID out there.
0: Well, that's sort of a story we've heard a couple of times now, isn't it? Uh, The virus keeps getting... More infectious and more, or, or better at evading our immunity that we've built up from previous infections and vaccines. So there's several, there's several new variants out there right now, sort of competing. So it's it's an alphabet soup. There's XBB and there's BQ one and BQ one point one and BA two point seven five, and we really don't know for sure which one's going to win right now. Uh-huh. But typically, what we've seen over and over is the older viruses get replaced with the newer viruses. And I think that's
1: going to continue. Who should we root for here?
6: (laughs) (laughs) The vaccine. Unfortunately, I
0: think the virus is going to make that choice for us. So uh, what we're rooting for in, in general terms is a virus that is just barely good enough to become the predominant one. What makes it good for the virus's point of view is that it evades our immunity and it infects people easily. The virus doesn't really care whether it makes us very sick. So we want to have that, that, that sense that there's lots of infections out there, but generally they're milder, and we've sort of seen that over the last few months.
4: Are these new variants detectable by the COVID tests we're still getting from the state yes. and maybe the yeah, federal yeah. government? Oh, good. Yeah. So I've a number of families with sick children out. They're taking COVID tests. Nobody seems to be testing positive for COVID, yet the warnings are out there.
0: <laughs> but you're seeing a different group than I am, Colleen, because oh, really? we're seeing a lot of people testing positive. Okay, really, uh, For sure. Yeah, of the tests we're doing at UW, uh, it's about 10% of tests that we do. We're doing about 15 a day right now, so we're down in the numbers. So does,
1: does getting one new strain of COVID protect you from the other new strains of COVID? Uh,
0: the critical question. So we look at that every time. We, as a scientific community and, and as UW Virology, we, we contribute to these studies. Uh, So you always ask that, right? If I had the original one, am I protected from BA1 or, you know, Omicron? And, and, and so we look in, in, as a rule of thumb, yes, you're protected, especially from severe disease and going to the hospital. You're probably not quite as well protected as you were from the one you had. Um, and that's why they updated the boosters, for example, mm-hmm. right? That the booster that wasn't really matched very well to what we have now gave you some pretty good, actually good protection, but we thought we could do better by making an Omicron-specific booster.
4: Mm. What do we know about long COVID at this point? It seems like this mysterious illness that follows only certain people. Do we know who it affects more or it's a real what thing. it does? It
0: is, it is a real thing, and people who suffer from that suffer greatly. So we need to be compassionate for folks who do, because... Uh, lots of other people get over it pretty quickly, and it was nothing. Uh, and people's experiences are different. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't have a great sense about what predisposes someone to COVID. I mean, we know that having a more severe bout of COVID is worse. Um, being in those risk groups we've talked about forever is often more associated with COVID. Not mm-hmm. a guarantee, and then we know that getting your vaccine reduces your chances of, of getting,
4: getting long, long COVID. COVID as well. And because yeah. we've seen it in all different age groups, and, and the main things I hear about that's debilitating for somebody who's still in their career is the fatigue, the mental strain that comes with it. Are any other viruses or illnesses, to your knowledge, capable of something like long COVID?
0: Well, I think that you see a subset of people in a lot of viral infections who get symptoms like that that are long. So this isn't new to COVID. it's, It's a combination of the virus and then our body's fighting of it. Remember what the body really is meant to do is to fight off these viruses and then sort of tune everything down. You know, we always say, oh, the antibodies go away over a period of months. Well, yeah, of course they do, because that's sort of what you're supposed to do, right? You're supposed to then be ready for the next thing and just have a little bit in reserve. And sort of one one potential pathway for how this long COVID and things like it happen is that the body just kind of keeps that little bit of inflammation going, mm-hmm. right? And it's and it's a fatigue. It's that same feeling you have when you're acutely ill, hmm. maybe a little so bit. So it's less. the body
1: being overly on guard. Is that what? Well, that's that? one thought.
0: Yeah, for huh. sure. That it's actually not the virus. I mean, sometimes in these. I mean, most of the time you can't actually find the virus in long COVID. Huh. Uh, the virus actually goes away. But the symptoms are still there, and it's thought, um, at least in a subset of people, and, and, and maybe lots of them, that the trouble is the immune system just isn't really winding down the way it really should.
4: That it's not necessarily short-circuited and not protecting you, but that it's overly productive and that's what's causing you to feel ill for months.
0: Yeah, I, I haven't really seen any studies. They may exist to say whether someone with long COVID is protected. My my prediction would be they'd, they'd have good immunity mm. for COVID going forward, um, but I think that's an open research question.
1: Now, it's not just COVID because I'm hearing that there was an outbreak of dengue fever in Arizona being spread by mosquitoes. Uh, is this something that we have to worry about or not?
0: Well, I think probably in November in Seattle, we're probably going to be okay. So there's a lot of mosquito they call them arthropod-borne viruses. They're actually sometimes called arboviruses, is a, is a shorthand. Um, and each one has its particular mosquito that it lives in and sort of a time of year when those mosquitoes are most plentiful. Um, Seattle, as you know, is not a terrible place for mosquitoes, actually. And most of those uh, mosquito-borne illnesses tend to be more tropical. So we're actually in a really good place. It's sort of funny in some ways that we have such a robust ability to study viruses here in Seattle when... For the most part, historically, <laughs> this hasn't been a real hotbed of dengue or yellow fever or any of these sorts of things. But then COVID came here first in the U.S., so yeah. y- you can never say never.
4: And we you know, always have those random cases of West Nile, too, which we know can be spread well, yeah, by and mosquitoes. And people travel.
0: Yeah. We, I yeah. think we were the last – I think we were the very last – State in the country to get West Nile. very, very, right. very close to the end. It came
4: late, but when it gets here, yeah. it gets scary, doesn't and, it? And You know,
0: that was actually, although you know, you guys didn't invite me in to talk about it, or but you know, <laughs> back in those days. We actually, you know, ramped up a whole diagnostic system for West Nile at UW Virology. We're really ready. And, of course, then it took the virus like a year and a half to march its way across the country and get here. But we were ready. And, of course, it turned out to not be anything like COVID. But, uh, you know, your your local virologists are in the background you know, doing the best we can to keep the, the, the local population safe. And that's safe.
1: that's nice to know. That's yeah. really sharing. Dr. Keith Jerome, the head of the UW Virology Lab, thanks for coming in. Yeah, my pleasure
4: seattle's morning news good morning i'm colleen o'brien along with dave ross and we have mickey gomez with us this morning with an incredible story i did catch like the headline of this mickey but i want to learn more about these i think like 30 year old embryos that were frozen and babies today were just born from those embryos that's incredible
6: it is an incredible story. So they were frozen back in 1992. And originally, oh. uh, there were three embryos. Rachel and Philip Ridgway opted to transfer all three embryos and two survived and became humans. <laughs>
4: you know? Yeah, I saw the video of the babies being born. And I thought, gosh, mm-hmm. they've been sitting on ice for 30 years. Must be nice to finally take a breath, huh? <laughs> <laughs> now, yeah. Why did they choose an embryo that had been frozen for thirty years? Was it less expensive? Was it, like I don't understand that choice.
6: I believe the facility that they used was like a religious type facility. Oh, and okay. So they wanted as many children as as possible. They didn't have a cap on that. They didn't apparently have any issues with fertility because they had other children naturally. Philip the the father said that they always thought that they would have as many children as God wanted to give us that that's a direct quote and um he said when he, they heard about embryo adoption they thought that that was something that they would like to do. I
4: see. So this started as an embryo adoption. They must have mm-hmm. what seen the profile of these embryos and thought, yeah. And then later learned they were thirty year old embryos. Well, right. good, good for them. And, it is. It's great news for anybody to know that embryos that have been frozen for three decades are still viable to become a, a living, breathing baby. Do you mind talking about your experience with this? And, and not at all in relation all. to this story. I mean, does any of it stand out to you as as important to to talk about?
6: It really does. Anytime I see a story about IVF or someone having children via IVF, I'm always like, ooh, what, where, when? You know, because it's it's a fascinating journey, and I went on it about uh, 15, 16 years ago. My wife and I did because clearly we can't have children together. So uh, we decided that... Um, We wanted to start a family after being together for four years. And uh, finally, uh, when we were together for our sixth year, we had a baby. We had our son. And we decided to do reciprocal IVF because my wife wanted some kind of attachment to her children. She either wanted to carry or she wanted to be DNA related. Mm-hmm. And that was really important for her. And I was just along for the ride because I I just wanted a child. It didn't matter to me. You could have hand, handed me a baby and said, this is your child. Take care of it for the rest of their <laughs> lives. And I would have been, thank you. I
4: believe <laughs> you know? that. You're a caretaker.
6: Oh, thank you. And so, um, so we embarked on this journey. We were in Michigan at the time. We found an IVF clinic that was accepting of us. And I I was very excited. And uh, I remember the day when we made the decision to move forward. We were driving down Cooper Lane in Austin, Texas, headed to my grandparents' house. And um, I had just gotten a bonus at work. And um, I, my wife said, we should get a pool. We should get a swimming pool. And I said, yeah, let's do it. And the approval papers had just come in from the city saying that we could put a pool in our backyard. And I kid you not, as soon as we hung up with our salesperson for our swimming pool, the IVF clinic called <laughs> and said, hey, we got all of your paperwork, your blood work, everything. You two are a great match for reciprocal IVF. We're giving you the OK to go it's it's a go whenever there you're ready there goes your pool money <laughs> and we went oh my gosh do we get a pool or do we get a baby <laughs> And we decided right then and there, yeah. let's go ahead and move forward with the baby. So we never got the pool, but we got we got a 14 year old son. So, <laughs> well, yeah,
4: it is expensive IVF in the process, no matter what you choose. Uh, you know, Twenty six thousand bring... dollars. Oh, my goodness. Is it any less expensive today? Do you know no. or do you th- are there? S- s- what do you call it? Like a scholarship or sponsorships for LGBTQ <laughs> families? Because I just am curious for those who, who don't have the money but desire a family. Are there programs out there that? that sponsor gay couples?
6: So I actually have a Facebook page that I've uh, owned, I guess you could say, for the last 16 years for LGBTQ parents and people trying to conceive. And what I have found, and there are over 5,000 people in this group that I moderate, um, IVF has not gotten any less expensive. Mm. If anything, it's gotten more expensive. What I do know is that more insurances may cover. I have found that there are these angel programs that are out there. If you qualify financially, they will help cover the cost of IVF medications. Mm. But the procedures, things like that, the ultrasounds, the actual creating an embryo Mm and then freezing it and then transferring it, there, there's really, you, you're going to pay out of pocket for that for the most part.
4: I, I just, flash, it's so garish, but it flashed into my mind one day when, when this is all shaken out like Memorial Day sales or holiday sales <laughs> on
6: embryos. You know, well, how you know what? Like, it's Labor Day, come down for buy one, get one free. <laughs> no, you know what? Oh my goodness. that That is how we got our second vial of sperm. What? It was a it was a buy one get one. Well, yes. It was a flash sale on sperm. It was a flash sale on sperm, <laughs> I kid you not. We got a text message from the sperm bank. That's how our second child came to be.
4: Well the sperm may be discounted, but the children priceless.
6: Are priceless. Yes, they are. Thank you, Mickey. You're very welcome.
1: Yeah, <laughs> that's the ultimate bargain hunting.
6: <laughs> All
4: always good stories coming from Mickey. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News.
1: You can hear us live every morning on 97.3 FM or subscribe to this podcast and you'll never miss the show.